Just let the last few people coming join. Any questions from anyone in the practice of this subject or anything general while you've been uh, on this, coming to these classes? Okay, so we're on class 25, chapter two, and this is the last topic, description of an enlightened soul, verse 54 to 72, 18 verses where Krishna gives us a clear description of a self-realized person. You have these qualities. You're a self-realized person. That's what Krishna is saying. In verse 54, we covered last week. Arjuna asks Krishna, he wakes up from his, uh, from his, sleep, from his uh, stupa. He's emotional, emotionally down. He asks Krishna, what is the characteristics, description of a God-realized person? A self-realized person. And he uses three words to ask this question, which are stitapagnia, which means a person with steady wisdom. Samadita, a person whose mind is in absolute tranquility. No agitations. Stitadihi, a person whose intellect is established yeah. in reality. So these three words are a definition of a self-realized person. Arjuna also asks, how does this person, a self-realized person, behave, Krishna? What is his nature? Meaning, what is he like? How does he talk? Meaning, how does he behave in the world? How does he sit? Meaning, what's his inner personality like? What is going on inside him? How does he walk? Meaning, how does he interact with people, objects? And as we mentioned, the, the question he asks is inappropriate based on the fact that there's arrows pointing at him. They're just waiting for the signal to say, let's start the war. And he's asking this question. But Krishna understands his situation and he explains in verse 55, a self-realized person is one who has completely destroyed all desires of the mind. Has no desires. And this state of fulfillment, this state arises when one revels in the self by the self. How do you get to that state? How do you get to that state? Any idea? 
What do you need to do? You're on the spiritual path. You want to revel in the self by the self. What do you need to do? What do you need to gain? Yeah, um, Deepa. You need to gain um, spiritual knowledge and to um, replace your desires with knowledge. Knowledge of? Wisdom. Knowledge of? Knowledge of uh, higher and self. The self. I heard, I heard your hubby in the background there. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only kidding. Knowledge of the self. It's all good. You need to gain knowledge of the self. The more knowledge you gain, naturally the desires fall away. Because you're fulfilled in that state. The happiness you get from wor fulfilling worldly desires is replaced by the knowledge of the self and you feel a lot more happier. More than any desires you fulfill, any material desires. Knowledge of the self makes you happy from, from, from within. So you feel more fulfilled from within. You don't need to contact the world. More knowledge you gain, naturally the desires fall away. You become less dependent on the world. When you reach enlightenment, meaning you're with the self 100%, all your desires are gone. You become free of all desires. This state is of one with steady wisdom, meaning he's gained the knowledge of the self, he's converted it to wisdom, no more desires. So, to be free of your lower gross desires, what do you need to do? What's the process? Deepa. You need to re um, eliminate your lower desires. By taking then, up? Uh, well, through not taking the higher. Taking higher. And, yeah. and um, converting it to wisdom. Yeah. So your gross desires fall away when you take up something higher, not necessarily spiritual, even worldly desires. Remember we gave the example, you played with toys, then you played with bikes, then you played with a car, then you played, then you had family. So all those desires, the greater desires, the grosser desires fall away. You grow out of them. But when we gain spiritual knowledge, we develop spiritually. We begin to live the higher values of life. And as you do that, you become less interested in worldly objects and beings. Lower desires start falling away. Until no more worldly desires. This is called renunciation. 
And when you revel 100% in the self, all worldly desires are gone. You have become one with Brahman, one with the greater self. Your self is part of the big self. Big self meaning this whole universe is Brahman. You have now become one with Brahman. One with the totality. Right now, you think you're an individual person. I am Deepa. I am Chandresh. I am Nikisha. These are all you. Differentiate yourself with the totality. When you're 100% with the self, you become one. You identify with the totality. And you can assert. Your, and you can begin by asserting the self. I'm not the body, mind, intellect, I'm the self. Keep repeating to yourself whenever you get a chance. Whenever you're affected, I'm not this body, mind, intellect, I am the self. Self is not affected. You remember that line, it'll get you out of trouble. I'm not, you feel sick, you feel ill. I'm not this body, mind, intellect, I'm the self. It's the body's feeling ill, not me. If you remember that, Like the other proverb, even this shall pass away. These sort of uh, proverbs, if you remember them, when you're in a difficult situation, it alleviates that pain. Just a few lines you need to remember. Even this shall pass away. I am not this body, mind, intellect. I am the self. You're emotionally affected. I am not the mind. I am the self. The mind is affected, not me. So that way you start identifying more with your spiritual being, the self, than your physical personality. Any questions? Does that make sense? Yeah, just a little tips. Syl has a question. No, I just, I just, I made an observation. And I, I, so Arjuna's, Arjuna's question, Verse 54. It almost like he's asking in a well, a step-by-step -step process, isn't he? So why is it that he asks Krishna, you know, Sitta Pratna? So it's like, how does he behave with steady wisdom? So it's almost like giving us a blueprint to say you can't have a samadhista without being. Of steady yeah. wisdom and then the intellect established in the reality because he could have asked it in the other way around right how does a person uh self-realized person behave he could have put sthita, samadhi first and then asked about the samadhi stand of the sthita pregna but mm -hmm. actually it's a step-by-step -step process isn't he so Arjuna obviously thought about what he was asking because he's thinking you can only have a mind that's tranquil by gaining the steady wisdom. Hmm. Yeah, it's no point you saying that. So are you asking that Arjuna has thought about his question yeah. and then he's asked? Well, it seems like it from the verse because he's, he's asking, you know, he's not asking, uh, you know, how does a, Sita Samadhi person, so how does a self-realized person 
act, okay? He, he's kind of saying, of steady wisdom, because mind is tranquil. So you're only going to have a mind that's tranquil if you've got wisdom to know that none of this really matters. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And then once you've got that tranquil mind, mm. that 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 you're established in reality because nothing else matters. Your mind is totally tranquil. It's free to think mm. beyond the world. Does everyone can you, everyone prior, hear this? Yeah. Prior to that, it's not free to think of the world. Okay. So first of all. We're trying to establish Arjuna's state of mind, yeah? And it's not necessary for us to do that because it doesn't help us in any way what Arjuna's state of mind is. The fact is, he's asking these questions. What is a self-realized person like? How does he sit, talk, walk? What he means, we don't know. Yeah, he may just literally mean, how does he sit? Remember I said, he sits cross-legged. That doesn't mean he's a self-realized person. From Arjuna's state, he doesn't even know what he's asking. Literally. Yeah. He's just replying to Krishna's, um, what Krishna has been talking for the last 15, 16 verses. He's just now raised that question. Okay, Krishna, what is this person like? He's curious. But has it come from him thinking about it? Well, being in the middle of the middle of two armies, in the middle of a battlefield with arrows pointing to him, I doubt it very much. But what I'm saying is, it doesn't matter for us. Yeah, it doesn't matter for us. Is that right? Any questions? Okay. And it doesn't matter for us because Krishna is going to explain everything in the next 16 chapters anyway, regardless of Arjuna's state of mind. So any questions before we start the next verse? Okay, so it will be verse 56. <laughs> okay. Dukes vanud vigna manaha, Sukesu vigatas praha, Vita raga bayakrodaha. Stita dir munni rujjate Dukes vanud vigna manaha Sukesu vigatas praha Vita ragabayakrodaha Stita dir munni rujjate He whose mind is not agitated by sorrow nor excited by joy, who is free from desire, fear, and anger, he is called a sage of steady wisdom. How many people are free from fear and anger? Anyone can say they're free from fear and anger. Okay, how many people can say they're free from anger? If you are free from fear and anger, you're a self-realized person. They've extended their desire to fear and anger. So this verse answers Arjuna's next question. How does a self-realized person sit? 
which means what is going on within him? What is the state of his inner personality? Remember we said Arjuna just asked, how does he sit? But Krishna's not, Krishna's um, looking at the question in a more deeper sense. Otherwise it does, it's meaningless. So we're looking at what is happening inside him. A person is said to be in a state of perfection when this person is not agitated by joy and sorrow. What does that mean? Not agitated by joy and sorrow. You should all be able to relate to that. A person is not agitated by joy and sorrow. Anyone? Larry? A person that's not um, not connected or has disconnected from the attachment. So joy or sorrow doesn't affect them because they're external um, feelings as such. Not agitated by joy and sorrow. Anybody else want to take a crack? So in life, we go through the pairs of opposites. One of them, one of those pairs is joy and sorrow. What do we all want? Which one do we all want? Joy. 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 We all want joy, happiness. Anybody wants sorrow? Nobody. Nobody wants sorrow. Misery. But that's not possible, is it? Is that possible? Anyone here generally has joy and no sorrow in their life? It's impossible. And it's not possible because the world is made up of pairs of opposites. You can't just have joy. Joy and sorrow come together as a package. You have to accept that as a package. Because this is the world. But what happens? When we have joy, we are happy, smiling. When we have sorrow, we are miserable, down. Why me? We're affected. So throughout life, we go through this. Joy, joy, sorrow, sorrow. Joy, sorrow. Sorrow, joy. It's like an emotional roller coaster that we all go through. We're not aware of it because it comes naturally. We just accept it, we just deal with it. Happy, unhappy. But someone who is self-realized, it's saying, is not affected by these changes. Life, his mind is always calm, no agitations. This is the difference. Does that make sense? We're all affected. Happiness and joy, joy and sorrow, we're affected. Self-realized person isn't. That's all we need to know from here. So when you're not affected, you're nearly there, self-realized. His mind is always calm. So when you study this subject, Vedanta, the self, and you develop on this path, you become less affected by these ups and downs. You become less affected by these changes 
So when you have sorrow, you don't suddenly become dejected. When you have joy, you don't suddenly start celebrating. Steady mind. You're calm regardless. Now, what happens is people misunderstand this. People around you misunderstand this. Any idea how they misunderstand you? Can anyone explain? Meghna, any idea? How would someone misunderstand you if you're not affected? I think you're cold. You're cold, cold absolutely. Yeah. They think you're cold, no emotions. And you'll find as you go on this path, as you gain more knowledge, you become more like that. People misunderstand it. So like, for example, you go to a funeral, uncle, aunt, mother, father, someone close has passed away. Everyone is crying, emotional. You're not. People think you have no emotions. Look at this person. They didn't care. No feelings. Your family members will say, since she's been going to these classes, I don't know what Aniket has been teaching them. She's become so cold. No emotions. This is not true, by the way. You do feel the emotions. You do feel sad. But you don't show it. That's the difference. Your intellect is in control of your emotions. That's the difference. You understand the person who's passed away was 90 years old. They had a good life. They suddenly passed away. You understand this is normal. This is part of life. You understand if you're born, you're going to die. It's just a matter of time. We all are. What is there to cry about? This is part of life. This is what you understand, therefore you're not affected. The other people don't, that's why they're affected. And the reason you cry is because of your own attachments, by the way, which we'll cover later, your attachment to that person. So you can feel emotions such as joy and sorrow, but you should not be affected by these emotions. Meaning you don't become emotional. Why shouldn't you become emotional? Any idea? What happens when you become emotional? Agitated, frustrated, you cloud judgment. That's what Shamila said. <laughs> Agitated. Lose control of your personality when you become emotional. You can't think straight. You can't act straight. You can't sleep. You can't eat. Is that the state you want to be in? This is what happens when you're not in control of your emotions. You've been working for a company 20 years. One day your boss says, I'm sorry, but you're made redundant from today. This happened last week, p Ferries. One guy was working there for 35 years. Video call to say you're redundant. What happens? 
you go home upset, crying. Can't believe after I gave the company 20 years of my life, this is how they treat me. Start feeling sorry for yourself. Wallow in that feeling of grief. Can't eat, think, sleep. Thoughts don't leave you. Weeks go by, you start feeling depressed. Next thing you know, you have antidepressants. Start slowly losing control of your personality. This is what happens when you're affected. Or when you gain this knowledge of life, you understand this day was going to come one day. I would have either been made redundant, company could close down, or I would have left eventually. Change is inevitable, nothing stays the same. You understand that? I have a chance to do something different. Let me see who's going to be lucky to have me and my skills. Emotions under the control of the intellect. That's the difference. Any questions? Does that make sense? Silabin, make sense? In control, not in control. In other words, the mind takes over your personality. And what did we say the mind is? Likes and dislikes, emotions. Any questions on that? Does that make sense? People, you understand the difference. Magna. When you say that you have to be unaffected by horrors, um, obviously that is, um, makes more sense because you're probably more affected by sorrow than you are of joy. But when you say to not be affected by joy, wouldn't it be better to be affected by joy but not affected by sorrow? In which case, because it's a happier... Okay, good question. Anybody would like to answer why we should not be affected by joy as well? Nilam? I think it's, I think in the moment it's okay to enjoy it, in my opinion, but it's that attachment and clinging to wanting it to stay all the time or yeah. to reject the sorrow in, you know, and also to understand that to experience joy, we almost need to experience sorrow, in my opinion. Yeah. Anybody else? Very good. Nilam, uh, self? I think we become acclimatized to that level of joy. And then it's almost like, I'm used to that joy. I need something more to bring me more happiness or more joy. Mm -hmm. We become almost so used to it. We don't enjoy it in the long run. Yeah. She's saying you become neutralized to that joy. Now, a couple of things here, uh, Meghna. First of all, if you behave, when you, when it's, when you, when you experience joy, yeah, you need to control emotions because if you don't, then what happens is the fall is much greater when you have sorrow around the corner. That's one thing. Okay, You can't handle the sorrow when it comes along because you've been at a high pedestal. And secondly, People can't control that emotion either. But people who win lottery, how much joy do you think when they get when they won five million pounds? They lose control of their personality. They lose control of emotional. They start giving money away. They don't know what, how to do, what to do with it. They can't think clearly. They can't behave in a normal way. That joy has overpowered them. 
mind says, I'm rich, I can buy anything. You've heard their stories. Within a couple of years, they're working back in the shops, behind the till, after winning so much money. Why? No control. In fact, some of them say they were happy. They wish they hadn't won the lottery. The, the joy was so great. <laughs> they had, it's so uncontrolled that they, they, they thought that it was a curse. Because they're not able to control their personality, their emotions, even with joy. Does that make sense, Nigma? So they're not saying don't feel joy. Be steady-minded no matter what. Understand today there's joy. Sorrow is around the corner. I'm not going to be affected by neither. I'm just going to stay calm and be neutral no matter what. Doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy your time. Keep it under rain. Keep it under control. That's what it means. Good question. Anybody else has a question about joy and sorrow? Is that all right, Magna? So if you don't feel emotions, you're like a plant. If you feel emotions and are affected, you're like an animal. Cats, dogs, affected by emotions. You leave your dog behind for a day or so. See what happens, whoever has a dog. Sunil, Anita, what happens to Kaspar? When you leave him for a day, they don't see you. Emotional. So if you are affected by emotions, you're like an animal. When you feel emotions, but not affected by them, then you are a human. Why? Because only a human has an intellect to keep the mind in the control. So a self-realized person, the intellect keeps the emotions under control. Therefore, you are in full control of your personality. So this answers the first part of the verse. He whose mind is not agitated by sorrow, nor excited by joy, who is free from desire. So the second part of the verse is not affect, agitated by fear and anger. He is called a sage of steady wisdom. How do you get to this state of a balanced, unaffected mind? How do you get to this state? It's in the it's in the um, comment it's in the uh, translation. How do you become free from anger and sorrow? From fear and anger, sorry. How do you become free of that when you're not affected at all? Free from desires. Need to be free from desires so that fear and anger you get to the state of mind by being free of your desires how many people can control their anger god plus desires equals human We are all God, 
This is our original state, but we have forgotten this. So what happens? Because we have forgotten who we really are, throughout our life we feel there's a void within us. Does that, does that make sense? We have forgotten who we are. We are the self. And this creates a void in us. Something is missing. Something is not right. Create some sort of pressure. Do you know, all know the example of the coil spring? When you press the coil spring, four feet spring, you push it down, there's pressure on your palms. As you release slowly, there's less pressure, less pressure. When, you re when it reaches its original state, there's no pressure. Does that everyone understand that example? I've given it before. Similarly, to release the pressure within us, to fill the void, we believe fulfilling desires will fill this void. So we go in the world fulfilling desires. Thinking that will bring me peace and happiness, but it won't. It cannot replace the self. That's why our thought flow towards thoughts flow towards objects and beings. And it will never stop. You'll continue fulfilling desires until you reach that state. Where does anger and fear come from? Any idea? Where does anger and fear come from? Yeah, Arunabhan? I think when things don't work out in the way that we thought they should. So our un, uh, unmet desires. Unmet desires, yeah, absolutely. It's a modification of a desire. So first of all, what is a desire? What is a desire, anyone? What does the mind do when there's a desire? Definition of a desire, anybody? Desire is a thought flow towards an object or being. A desire is a thought flow towards an object or being. You analyze it. It's either something you want, something you desire. And when you fulfill a desire, it can take on many modifications. One of them is fear, fear of losing that object or being you have required, acquired. You have a new car, you, buy, you have a desire for a car, the dream car, you save up for it for years, then you finally order it, you pick it up, your desire is fulfilled for the car, then what happens? Once you've got the car on the driver, what happens? Yeah, Vanilla? You're worried that someone's gonna scratch it or something's gonna happen to it. <laughs> they fulfill the desire, now it's been changed to fear. Someone's gonna scratch it, someone's gonna steal it, it's gonna get into an accident. That's one modification, the other is anger. When someone interrupts your flow of thoughts towards an object or being, it produces anger. Think about it. Why do you get angry? Someone says, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't have this. 
You get angry. Simran likes Raj. Fourth flow going towards Raj. I like Raj. I want to be with Raj. Then what happens? Tina comes on the scene. She likes Raj. What happens to Simran? What happens to Simran? The desire for Raj is disturbed. Thought flow is disturbed because of Tina. This thought flow modifies into anger towards Tina. How dare she? You understand that? The thought is flowing towards a person. Somebody else comes on the scene. That desire becomes anger. Modifies into anger towards that person. And when finally Simran gets Raj, desire modifies to fear in losing Raj. How dare you look at my husband like that? Lucky Raj, huh? This is anger and fear. A modification of a desire. So these desires, these emotions keeps us in the world. Stops the intellect pursuing the truth to get back to the true self. This is the problem. Basically, I'm just identifying what problems we have in life that keeps us from the self. And it never stops. You analyze your life. This is how it is. Right now, Putin has a desire to get Ukraine. If he gets Ukraine, he thinks he'll be happy. Anybody comes in the way of his desire, what's happening? He's getting angry, isn't it? Is that, if you follow it, he's getting angry at other people, other states, how dare. And we all know once he gets Ukraine, the desire will come into another country. You want to take something, another country. It doesn't stop. At any level, it's the same. So a person who has reached perfection is in a state of mental equanimity. He has no more desires to fulfill. This person is a sage of steady wisdom. That's what verse 56 is saying. Any questions? I know it's a lot to take in, but don't worry. As we go along, it will be more diluted. Yeah, Nikisha. Um, does expectations also come into play with this? In what sense? Can you expand on that, please? Um, I guess that's more disappointment. Um, mm. But like having expectations of something, someone or a situation, and then that expectation is not met. So then you, you could have anger, sadness, mm -hmm. disappointment, and also joy. Yeah. So it depends on what created the expectation. See, the mind can ask for anything. Yeah? So what? who created that expectation? Did you think about it? Is it in your capacity? Can you achieve it? Did the intellect think about it and say, yes, I would like to get to this stage, get to this level, whatever it may be in life, work, um, 
in any, any stage of your life, if you set up a realistic goal, which is achievable, that if you thought about, then there's no problems. But if you set an unrealistic goal beyond your expectation, beyond your capacity, then automatically you'll fail. So who set the goal? You can, you can, if it's the mind, you can ask for anything. Is that okay, Niksha? If it's the intellect, you thought about it, analyzed it, you know it's in your grasp, you can achieve it, then there's no problems. When do you fall? Is because you've set unreasonable expectations, which are not achievable. So realistic goals, that's what we're saying. Does that answer your question? Did I understand it clearly? It's more like um, along with your desire, I think comes expectations, maybe. Um, as you said, um, desires, you can, you, can, you can desire for anything in life. That doesn't mean it's a reasonable desire. The mind can ask for anything. Where has that desire come from, the mind or the intellect? If it's the mind, then the chances are that there's no thought process behind it. If it's the intellect, then the chances are you thought about it. Then if you put the right effort in, there's no reason why you can't achieve it. So once again, mind, emotions, likes and dislikes, or intellect, thinking, reasoning. Is that okay? Everything boils down to the mind intellect, because those are the two vehicles that control your body. Hence, you need to strengthen the intellect. Any other questions? So. This is talking about the absolute level, mm. somebody who's reached that state. Mm. What about in the relative terms? Because if we're thinking about majority of us, we're in the relative terms, we're not going to be, there are, there are levels where no matter where we are or how advanced we are in the knowledge, we are going to be affected, yeah. either joy or sorrow. We are going to um, be affected by the pairs of opposites of, so I'm, I'm trying to understand in a relative term how I would sure. practice this. You practice this steadily. We're talking about a self-realized person. Krishna is giving out um, a description of a self-realized person. Hence, it's at the absolute level. Mm. Now, from your perspective, you understand that is the absolute level. And you strive slowly, surely towards that goal. Once you start on that path, then slowly, slowly you'll get there. Evaluate your desire. A desire pops up, think about it. Is it taking me to the self or is it taking me into the world? That's a start. You might do that one out of 10 times. More knowledge, develop intellect, more in control of your personality. That's basically the bottom line.
So would an assumption be that where we are, where a self-realized person is 0% ruled by mind. the mind, we are a percentage ruled by the mind and not always the intellect, then is it that we need to assess at what percentage we're ruled or? You can do, but at the end of the day, I think at this stage, just think about where, you know, just be aware of your desires, be aware of your thoughts, where have they come from? It's very difficult, but as you get deeper and deeper into the subject, you gain more knowledge, you're more, in, you, you're, it's like lifting weights. Right now, if I give you a hundred kilo weight, you say, I can't lift it. So start with five kilos, start with 10 kilos, do it in your capacity. As you start lifting those 10 kilo weights, slowly you can't build up to 15, 20, 25, same way until you get to the maximum weight that you can lift, 100 kilos, whatever it may be. Take it slowly. As you gain knowledge, be aware of your personality. Think about desires, where they're coming from. Evaluate them. As I said, I am this, I'm not this body, mind, intellect. I am the self. Think of that. The more you revel in this knowledge, the more you get knowledge you gain, hence studying in the morning, more you able to do that. Yeah. Any questions? Nilam, did you just have a question? We're not saying after this class everyone should be in that state. We're saying this is the goal. This is what a self-realized person is. Trying to understand it. So we can strive towards it. If we don't understand where we're going, how are we gonna know? Right, who is it, uh, Ravi? Ravi, thank you. A person reaches the state of perfection when his mind is neither agitated by sorrow nor excited with joy. His mind remains in a state of equanimity undisturbed by emotional variations. Here again, the interpretation of this verse has produced a distorted understanding of the state of perfection. Critics condemn this verse on the grounds that it includes, inculcates callousness and destroys human feelings. The criticism is baseless. The verse does not idolize the lack of emotion, your mind would still feel joy and suffer sorrow, but your intellect would not allow the feelings of joy or sorrow to victimize you, to overpower you. You would keep the emotions of your mind under the control of your discerning intellect. In other words, you would have emotions but never turn emotional. Emotionalism destroys your balance and poise. To have emotion is a virtue, but to allow your emotions to interfere with your intellectual judgment and awareness is spiritual weakness. The verse indicates perfection as absolute tranquility of the mind, ever unaffected by any joyous or grievous emotions. One freed from desire, 
fear and anger experiences this state of mental equanimity. Desire is the root of emotions. One develops desires due to a sense of imperfection, incompleteness or unfulfillment felt within. A person who feels perfect, complete and fulfilled entertains no desires whatsoever. Until you reach that state of absolute fulfillment in self-realization, you will always feel a void within in the hope of fill, filling this void, your thoughts run towards the world of objects and beings. Desire is the stream of thoughts flowing from you to the object. Once entertained, the desire can take on several modifications. This verse indicates two such modifications. When another object or being interrupts your flow of thoughts towards the object of desires, this deflected thought currents are called anger. When your desires are fulfilled, you begin to entertain fear of losing whatever you have gained. These emotions destroy the steadfastness of your intellect in the pursuit of truth. A sage, therefore, is one whose intellect is rooted in truth, free from the influence of emotions. So when you're free from emotions, you're steady-minded. If you're steady-minded, you can continue pursuing towards the goal of self. If you're affected, then it takes you away from that path. You see the difference? This is the reason why. When you're anger, fear, it takes you away from the path that you're trying to reach, the goal you're trying to reach on the path. And this is the problem. Any questions? Okay, I think we'll do one more verse. Verse 57. Ya bishnehas tatat prapya supa subam Na binandati na vesti, tasya pragna pratishtita. He who is everywhere without attachment, who having met good or evil, neither rejoices nor hates, his wisdom is established. Same similar lines. Sorry. So it was just told me I forgot to read the second time. So let's read it again. Ya so vatrana bishnehas, tatat prapya subasubam, nabinandati na vesti, tasya pradna pratishtita. He who is everywhere without attachment, who having met good or evil, neither rejoices nor hates, his wisdom is established. So Krishna answers Arjuna's next question. How does a man of perfection walk? Meaning, how does this person contact the external world? How does he contact the world, this man of perfection? Now, remember, man of perfection, self-realized person is no different from us normal people. 
He moves around in the world and contacts the world in the same way as we do. There's no difference. But the difference is that this person is dynamic in his action. In everything he does, he does it 100% perfectly. And whilst he's acting in the world, he does not develop any attachment to any object or being. He just does what he needs to do. No attachment to anything. See the difference? We get attached to everything. We get a job, we attach to the, to the job. We buy a house, we're attached to the house. Meet a partner, we're attached. Have child, children, we're attached to the children. Attachments produce suffering and sorrow. How does it produce suffering and sorrow? Any idea? Why is attachment bad for you? It says, makes, it gives, it produces suffering and sorrow. Why does it do that? How does it do that? Attachment. How does attachment create suffering and sorrow? Yeah, Ravi? Um, because you're effectively, when you're attached to people or things, you're putting your you know, happiness in the hands of that attachment as such. So you're not able to think clearly. You're, you know, you're affected by them because you're attached to it. Whatever happens to the object or being you're attached to happen to you. You get mentally affected by this. Think about it. Whenever you're attached, whatever happens to that object or being affects you. And when we are affected, what happens? Our ego blames the world for our suffering. It's not the world's fault. It's not the world's, the world is not responsible for this. What is responsible? Don't say just attachment. What is, who is responsible? Yeah, Nilam? Well, the mind, but ultimately mm -hmm. us, <laughs> because we've got an untrained mind. Untrained mind. It's our wrong, it's our wrong relationship with the world that produces this misery. It's our wrong, we don't, we're, it's, we're in ignorance. We don't understand how to relate to the world. So you've got to remember, world is what it is. We can't change it. The world is what it is. So we have to learn how to relate to it. The world's not going to change for you. So we have to learn how to relate to it. You get a partner. You have to learn how to relate to that partner. If you want it to be a successful relationship. Similarly, the world is what it is. You have to relate it in the right way. So it's only our fault. We don't relate to it in the right way. Sorrow and suffering. Attachment. Also, we're affected. Due to our ignorance, we're affected by what happens in the world. Good things happen, then we're happy. If bad things happen, we're miserable. A man of perfection is unaffected by external events in the world. Unaffected by the pairs of opposites. He's in a different state altogether. 
is he is one with the self he understands the world and is he understands the world and is not dependent on it for his happiness just does what he has to do why is he still alive then you think makes you think why is he still alive anybody know why he's still alive knows it no desires why is he still alive not affected by anything Ravi, did you put your hand up? Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe um, the vasanas, the momentum is still there to no, reinforce those yeah. vasanas. Also, um, the person may have to fulfill their obligations whilst they're here. Yeah. You need to fill your obligations. Internally, you're not affected, but externally, you still have obligations, which you fulfill perfectly. But he's not dependent on the world for his happiness or any object or being. And he says, any human being can become self-realized regardless of religion, caste, or color. The message in the Gita is universal and applies to all human beings. This isn't Hindu religion or anything like that. This is philosophy of life, the world, and human beings. We don't discriminate. Any questions? It's a lot to take in today. Arunabhan, can you read the commentary, please? The Lord describes the nature of an enlightened soul in verse 55. In verse 56, he explains the state of his inner personality. In this verse, he states the behavior of a man of perfection in the world, how he makes contact within ex with external objects and beings, the impact of environment and happenings on him. In explaining these points, Krishna answers Arjuna's question, how does he walk? How does he contact the external world? The preceding two verses describing a man of perfection may give one an impression that he is inactive and insensitive. Krishna corrects this possible impression. The word sarvatra means everywhere, at all quarters. The perfect one is said to be everywhere. It means he is dynamic, active in every field, very much in contact with the world like anyone else. But the difference between the perfect one and an average person lies in the mode of contact with the external world. Both are active, both move about. The perfect one makes contact with the objects and beings of the world without developing the least attachment to them. Whereas most people develop attachments wherever they go, whatever they do. People all over the world live a life of extreme attachments to objects and beings. Consequently, they live a miserable life. Attachments produce suffering and sorrow. The world does not produce suffering in your life. Your wrong relationship with it does. The moment you drop your clinging attachment to the world, you live a life of peace and bliss. 
Besides suffering from attachment to worldly possessions, people allow themselves to be disturbed by external events and happenings. They rejoice when agreeable and pleasant things happen to them. They hate, they hate and sulk when disagreeable and unpleasant things visit them. A man of perfection does not fall a prey to these mental fluctuations. Pleasant environments, situations, and events do not excite him. Unpleasant visitations do not plunge him into dejection. External happenings like heat and cold, war and peace, birth and death, do not disturb the absolute peace and bliss of self-realization. The word yah means he who, whoever. This word appears throughout the Gita. It implies that the message of the Gita is universal. Yah includes all types of individuals, irrespective of caste or creed, community or country. Whoever fits in the above description will be an enlightened soul. Thank you, Herman. Any questions? I have a question for you. How would you apply this concept of attachment with family? Your wife, your husband, your children, brothers, sisters. How would you apply this concept? Because we're, they're, they're the closest to us and we're, most of us are attached to them. How would you apply this? Yeah, Hernabin? I think by realizing that we, we're all playing our different roles according to our own vasanas. Yeah. And therefore you accept that they are playing from their vasanas. They're behaving in the way that their vasanas kind of rule their lives. And so are we. And mm -hmm. that brings about uh, kind of acceptance and tolerance. Yeah, perfect. Well said. Anybody else want to add to that? Yeah, Neelam? I also think, um, you know, we've been talking about our wrong interaction with the world or perception of the world. So the more we develop ourselves and our understanding and almost use all our relationships with our families, which are the ones that will bring up our fears and our angers in situations or conversations. If we can use them as a tool to put into practice what we're learning, yeah. I think that will then help us, like Omabim was saying, to be more understanding and um, yeah. accepting of them without trying to change them. We're looking yeah. at what we can do to create that steadfastness within ourselves so yeah. that we can just allow them to be who they are and maybe set a good example for how they might want to then delve into the knowledge Absolutely, both of you are absolutely correct. Yeah, you you understand how their personality is, what their vastness are, and you let them be. You do your duty, you do your obligations. Your children, you guide them with the wisdom that you have. If, as as they get older, they may not listen to you. You understand they may have to make mistakes. You give them the best guidance you can, but you have to leave it to them. They may fall over. Next time, they'll be more careful. They have to learn from their own experiences of life. But tell them you always that we are here if you need us. And then let them free. When you're attached, it creates problems for you and for them. 
That's how you deal with it in the family. Is that okay? So it means your own development. Shilaman. I think it's also, uh, it, I don't know the balance, but this is how I feel now. When we do things out of duty, it's like you're performing, but when you do things out of love, that's a different ballgame. Because when you do things just for love, whether how the person reacts or don't react, it doesn't affect one. So I think that plays a very, for me now, everything just comes out of love. You know, not, it's not, I don't feel that it's my duty to do this, or it's my duty to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm just- you do it out of love. Yes. Yeah. What's the difference between love and attachment? Uh, when you do something out of love, I, I don't want anything in return. Brilliant. When you do it with attachments, it's like, oh, if I do this for them, you know, they, will I make them happy? Or how would they react? I'm not waiting for any reaction. And also, when you deal with attachment, you're expecting something back. Yeah. Yeah. You make a nice meal. You want everyone to praise you. It's the best meal I've tasted. These chapatis are so lovely. This curry is so nice. If they don't, you're affected. Attachment. You do it out of love, it doesn't matter. They say, they don't say, it doesn't matter. Done it out of love. You've done the best you can. That's all that matters. Yeah, Shilabin, that was perfect. You're absolutely right what you said. Great. Okay. Taking enough of everyone's time. Next week, there's no class. Mother's Day, one hour forward, and we're not here. <laughs> so enjoy that time, Mother's Day. And have an extra hour of sleep. What did, oh, Sil said, don't be attached to Mother's Day, yeah? It's just another Sunday. And I told my, my Masi called me yesterday and she said, I told my Masi, I said, Masi, you are a mother because you have the children. If there's no children, you're not a mother. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Have a lovely day. Weather looks nice. Enjoy. And I'll see everyone in a couple of weeks.